0: Get going as we have a middle of the week whole load of information to pass along your way on today's edition of Midday on the Rural Radio Network. And Dirk Christensen, welcome to the round table. Not exactly round, it's kind of a, I don't know, what is this? A kind of a rounded off uh, horseshoe. Squares. Horseshoe, that's a good. Yeah, I sit in the middle of the horseshoe. All these people regale us with information on the microphone strewn here and about. Uh, here are the studios of the Rural Radio Network. And Susan Littlefield is first up today. Nice to see you out of your cast. Thank
1: you. Me too.
0: Uh-huh. And But you do have a little apparatus there. I do
1: have a little splint that I'll wear for a week before they decide what the next step is. And okay. I could be back in a cast for seven weeks. <laughs> yeah.
0: All right. Well... I don't know how she does it, ladies
1: and gentlemen. It's a superhuman effort.
0: (laughs) I don't know about that. But here she is to lead the rural radio information up today. And what do you have?
1: Well, coming up at 1219, uh, Clay's going to have UNL Extension No-Till Specialist Paul Yassa and No-Till Producer Roy false scrap talking about the importance and no-till things that they're seeing that you could utilize already starting this spring with planting mike steenhook is the executive director of the soy transportation coalition will join me at twelve forty-five. he has spent the last couple of days reading page by page the president's transportation infrastructure proclamation it's not really a proclamation but many think it is it's uh-huh. like the plan that's in place to make rural america great again
0: okay well <laughs> we could use a lot of that I
1: exactly guess. and then shaley catches up with deb fisher to talk about the introduction to the farm act
0: all right we'll watch for all of that thanks very much Susan. you're Jason welcome Jorgensen over here got wrestling got basketball it's all coming up
2: there's a ton of stuff going on and one thing that continues to be a high priority is the play of the nebraska men's basketball team mm-hmm. Won their sixth in a row last night over Maryland, pulling it out 70-66. to James Palmer Jr. was large with 26 points, 24 of those coming in the second half. Now, there continues to be a lot of scuttlebutt out there. Now, the Huskers are at 20 wins, but their RPI is is not very good. The Big Ten has been down this year. So even though the Huskers have had a good season, and they're a 20-win team right now with some games left, most of the experts think they have to win out here in the regular season, to make sure that they would get to the NCAA tournament.
0: Just to even get a whiff, huh?
2: Yes. So wouldn't that be Nebraska's luck that they have a year in which they surpass 20 wins and and they would be left out? Wow. But the Big Ten has not been a strong league. It does Mm -hmm. not have the reputation that it's had in the past. We will see. So they just need to keep on winning.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, they seem to be doing it so far. Yeah,
2: the Husker women—they'll try to keep on winning on the road tonight as they're in East Lansing to take on Michigan State. It would be the tenth Big Ten Conference victory of the season for the Huskers. Uh, the women also appear to be poised to head to the NCAA tournament. They are eighteen and seven overall, nine and three in Big Ten action. And stop me if you've heard this story before. <laughs> Former Heisman Trophy winning quarterback Johnny Manziel oh, no. says he's making a football comeback.
0: Yeah, really? Yeah. Okay.
2: He's on Good Morning America and everything. Yeah, he's,
0: he's changed been... his ways. showing shown a lot of faith lately. All right. And Business News with Bob Brogan. Everybody deserves a second chance. His would be more like fourth, third, or fourth
2: or fifth. Fourth. Well, <laughs> maybe not
3: fourth and fifth, but anyway. Yeah. Banks are gaining today, leading U.S. stocks higher, so we're watching that situation. Phillips 66 is repurchasing. A bunch of stock from uh, Warren Buffett's firm, and uh, we'll have those details and more
0: coming up. Johnny Manziel, good investment or not, you decide. No. no. All coming up on Midday. <laughs> Paul Perkins steps in to take a look at our ag weather. It's brought to you by Holdridge Irrigation, your ranky dealer. Lots of clouds
4: out there. Yes, uh, kind of a filtered sunshine day for today. pretty thick filter, but we will see some... A little bit of the thinning of the clouds for today, some broadly cloudy skies. Temperatures warming nicely thanks to some southwest winds. And right now, temperatures into the upper 30s and low 40s in many locations. We are still down to 33 at last check in McCook and 32 at Lexington, 34 at Hastings, but up to 47 at Ord. This morning earlier, they were at 13 degrees, one of our chillier spots, and 54 right now at Bedford. Very nice morning.
0: The uh, interesting thing is on our super-duper weather screen here, Uh all of the temperatures, you know, for each 10-degree split that you have for those temperatures, it's a different uh, color. And it looked like Neapolitan ice cream had been (laughs) spilled all over Nebraska this morning, so many different ranges.
4: Yes, exactly. Yeah, because we we did have a big spread in temperatures this morning. It was kind of nuts. Like, Ward was at 13, and just down the road in Broken Bow was 31, and up at Thetford
0: is in the 40s. And look at that. We're getting into the 50s in parts of the panhandle now. very nice and coming this way
4: yep exactly uh, cloud cover on the increase today giving us some filtered sunshine some cirrus, uh, cirrus clouds moving through some thin cirrus clouds and some low pressure approaches out of the northwest temperatures mild with that southwest flow ahead of the area of low pressure a cold front tomorrow will cool our temperatures slightly with some breezy northwest winds but not as cold as we have been experiencing actually temperatures tomorrow closer to what we usually get this time of year in the low and mid 40s in many locations a reinforcing shot of cold there though with canadian high pressure rise for tomorrow night into friday and that will cool our temperatures off even more as that area of high pressure slides southeast over the weekend some south winds kick in on the backside and we'll see our temperatures warm up to some nice levels over the weekend especially by sunday when we're looking at highs once again in the 40s and 50s and close to 60 over southwestern locations like kansas looking at Temperatures today in the low to mid-60s. That pattern still looks mainly dry through early next week. There are some small chances of snow with an Arctic blast that starts to arrive by late Sunday night into Monday. More light snow is possible in the middle part of the week as that Arctic air lingers much of next week. And that is evident definitely in the long term. A high likelihood of colder than normal temperatures for Nebraska, Kansas And the western two-thirds of the U.S. Monday through February 23rd. And actually the chances for colder than normal temperatures increases towards those later periods of late next week through the 23rd. The precipitation forecast in Nebraska and Kansas starts out with above normal precipitation the early half of next week. Then we trend drier than normal late next week through the 23rd. In the markets, weather factors include... Unfavorable weather in the next few days for South American crops and limited rain chances for wheat in the Southern Plains. Sudden warmth across the nation's midsection will be short-lived as cold air sweeps across the Plains and Midwest by tomorrow and Friday. Another blast of cold air expected in the Northern Plains and upper Midwest late in the weekend and early next week. Another significant precipitation event will unfold from northeast Texas to the Central Appalachians. Flooding is possible where they've already seen some heavy rain. It's kind of a different story, though, unfortunately, for much of the Southern Plains. Wheat areas where it remains dry, five to seven days out, though, north-central Texas and south Oklahoma may get in on some rain. More dry weather expected in key growing areas of southern Brazil in the next six to seven days, but the heat won't be a big problem. Soybeans would benefit from more rain. Towards northern Brazil, rain will slow soybean harvest in second crop. Second corn crop planning, especially this weekend and Monday. In Argentina, dry weather and a warming trend will maintain the crop stress through at least the weekend. There's an uncertain chance of scattered rain in the driest areas of southern Santa Fe and southeast Cordoba that does not come until about Tuesday.
0: Our information brought to you by Holdridge Irrigation, your ranking dealer, Ag Weather with Paul Perkins, and I'm going to put you on the spot here. I know you've made a judgment call. There are some (laughs) folks who are calling for some fog about midnight tonight.
4: Yeah, we could see maybe a little bit of patchy fog. You know, if we get a lot of melting today, a lot of that moisture going to be left in the air, winds are expected to dine down quite a bit tonight, but... A lot of times that fog won't last a whole lot because we are going to see those winds turn to the west tomorrow and northwest, and so that'll make that, sh- that fog very short-lived. All right, so the line
0: judge says the foot was <laughs> out. There won't be that much fog if there is any yep, fog. Yeah, looking at maybe patchy at best. All right, very the good. Output. And you can catch all of the forecast information, of course, on our website, and you can get a hold of our app as well. And you need weather anytime. kRvn.com.
3: Poultry bills introduced into the Kansas legislature look to open the state to poultry producers and processors. Then we look at recommendations on how to improve public comments to make them more noticeable to legislatures. That's all ahead on the Rural Radio Network. I'm Clay Patton. Two Kansas Senate bills are receiving widespread support that would allow the expansion of confined chicken growing operations as well as processing plants within proximity to residential areas. Kansas Senate Bill 364 and 365 have both been endorsed by two of the state's largest ag industry organizations, including K-State University faculty and county development groups. The proposed legislation would set boundaries of concentration of chicken houses, the number of birds at each site, and established locations where a chicken processing plant could be built. These bills look to improve the recruitment of companies interested in making investments in new production facilities. Kansas Department of Ag Secretary Jackie McCleskey says if we're going to grow the economy, we need to grow agriculture. These bills are not designed to do anything to weaken our environmental standards. It's designed to change the role of the state and locals in deciding what kind of business they want to recruit in their community. Kansas, in retrospect to many of its neighboring states, has only a modest poultry footprint, while the surrounding states have fully embraced poultry production and poultry processing. Scott Baer, associate professor of animal science at K-State, weighed in on the discussion, saying out of all animal production... Poultry is one industry that is rapidly expanding and will probably continue to expand well into the future. The Senate bill's timing follows last year's community backlash after Tyson Foods proposed to build a $320 million poultry production and processing complex near Tonganoxie, Kansas. Tyson also wanted to open a chicken hatchery and feed mill to serve up to 400 chicken-raising houses on farms and ranches within a 50-mile radius. After initial support for the development, the public soon turned against the proposal and Tyson pulled all of its possible investments. This story is available, as well as many other ag news stories, at ruralradio.com. In other ag news, public comment periods give ag producers a rare chance to influence regulatory decisions that directly affect their farming operations. To their credit, many producers take advantage of these comment periods, but with thousands of comments streaming into an agency's website, it's easy to be overlooked or dismissed. This proof comes as more than 40,000 public comments submitted to the EPA on the soybean seed treatments. The agency only identified 150 comments as worth reading. In the EPA statement following the public comment period, it said approximately 150 comments contained substantial information and or cited additional data that was directly relevant. Tell producers make sure their voice is heard. DTN has a few suggestions on how to comment meaningfully and make your opinion count in a public comment period. First and foremost is make sure you're at the right time at the right place. Regulations.gov can be a confusing place, so make sure you're commenting on the right docket and the right rule. Forget the form letters, DTN recommends. If you look at the public comment section of recent pesticide decisions, you'll find thousands of identical prepared statements copied and pasted over and over with the different name signed to each one. These form letter campaigns have become a popular way for companies and organizations to flood a federal agency with their viewpoint, but they're unlikely to sway regulators. The EPA noted that the comment process is not a vote. One well-supported comment is often more informative to the agency than a 1,000 form letters. Next, make sure you have your facts correct and back them up whenever possible with personal and professional research. Ag producers make up just 2% of the population, but they still have a voice. Make sure yours is heard when it comes to important ag legislation. I'm Clay Patton. Keep a straight row and keep listening to the Rural Radio Network. UNL Extension and Cover Crops, as well as why it's important for producers to attend meetings and to expand their knowledge on farming and other ag operations. That's all ahead on the Rural Radio Network. I'm Clay Patton. Last week I had the opportunity to MC the No-Till on the High Plains conference held in Burlington, Colorado. One of the main presenters there, UNL Extension, Paul Yassa. And Paul joins us now to talk about what he was talking with producers last week.
5: In this meeting, I normally talk about the system's approach to no-till, looking at the equipment. Uh, This meeting, I was looking at the system's approach to crop rotations, how I can feed my soil with different crops in the rotation, that might include cover crops. And so I brought out some examples I've learned across the years working with no-till.
3: And how have producers reacted to your information?
5: That's a presentation that doesn't give them the recipe, it makes them think about what goes into the recipe and from that I'm getting a lot of positive comments So I'm opening up their minds to thinking about what they're doing with the soil.
3: And you've been on the no-till track for a long time, kind of talk to us about from when you began to now some of the changes you've seen.
5: In 78 when I started working with it I was a young engineer thinking that equipment was the way to go. Uh, learned real fast when I put out my first no-till plots. you, know, you got to know agronomy. you got to know plant responses. I uh, looked a lot at soil and water conservation, uh, more at nutrient cycling. As the time went on, soil health is emphasis now. Feed that soil system. A good, healthy soil will give you healthy crops. It's going to give us a healthy food product.
3: And for folks that want to know more, they want to know more about UNL's no-till extension and work there, where can they go to find more information?
5: Uh, UNL, we have a... Uh, weekly crop production crop scouting newsletter during the growing season it's called crop watch just as a single word crop edu is his web address now during the rest of the season it tells when the meeting announcements are when you can go learn more about something but it's also our portal to all of our information from UNL on crop production you can click on corn for instance click on nitrogen click on here's our recommendations or click on wheat diseases and so on so again a portal for information all the time Meeting announcements in the meeting season and crop scouting in the summertime.
3: That again, Paul Yasso with UNL Extension. Another person I talked with at the CCTA convention was Roy Falzgraft, a northeast colorado producer who's been practicing no-till for several years and he talks about how his no-till experiences went
5: the key with no-till is you have to be patient in our part of the world you have to go at least five years and the problem is we see a lot of guys get four years in and they give up on it and with ours um, people talk about their their ground being so hard they can't get a drill in the ground and we go in in middle august you walk across the ground and you're sinking into the soil since it's so soft and there's just always moisture there and it's it's really amazing to see the difference and what comes out of it.
3: And Roy for folks that are thinking about attending a conference like this what would be your recommendations to them?
5: Um, I think the biggest thing is bring a friend. Uh, there's so much information in so many different seminars and part of it you can go to the same seminar and you'll have stuff to talk about. Part of it is, is you can split up and cover more ground and get more ideas but you need somebody to bounce ideas off of so you can come up with new things for, for what, what's what's going to work for your operation.
3: That again, Roy Falzgraf, a local producer, who attended the No-Till on the High Plains conference, talking about how he's implemented No-Till on his dry land operation as well as why it's always good to bring a friend or someone along to these conferences to bounce ideas off of. The CCTA convention lasted over two days and saw more than 400 producers and ag industry stakeholders pass through the doors. The conference included over 10 breakout session leaders as well as two keynote speakers. You can see video interviews with the speakers and breakout session leaders and more all at RuralRadio.com. You're listening to the
0: Rural Radio Network. It's midday on the Rural Radio Network, and time to check sports now with Jason Jorgensen. Hey, thanks, Dirk. We'll make it six wins in a row for
2: the Nebraska men's basketball team as the Huskers edged Maryland last night at Pinnacle Bank Arena. James Palmer Jr. scored 24 of his 26 points in the second half, and Isaiah Roby had all 11 of his points after half as Nebraska secured its first 20-win season in 10 years. Robby says the Huskers know there's still a lot on the line from here on out. I
6: think they're battling, too. I'm not sure tournament chances are, but they're, they're battling like a team that's trying to make it, too. So, I mean, all the teams from here on out are playing for something. Um, so, I mean, every game, is. I mean, like you said, it's like a tournament game. You lose, it could hurt your chances a lot. So.
2: This is also the first time since the 1997-98 season that the Huskers have won six straight games in conference action. KU last night picked up a much-needed win on the road as they were able to take care of Iowa State, 83-77, and Creighton cruised to a 94-46 home victory over Division II Bemidji State. The Nebraska women's basketball squad opens up a two-game Big Ten road swing this week as they're in East Lansing, Michigan, to take on Michigan State. The Huskers are looking for their 10th Big Ten Conference victory of the season while also aiming for their 10th consecutive road victory of the year. Nebraska is 8-0 in true road games this season, including 5-0 in the Big Ten. Nebraska is one of just five NCAA Division I teams that is unbeaten this year in true road games. Now tip-off tonight between the Huskers and Spartans is set for 6 Central. Former Heisman Trophy winning quarterback Johnny Manziel says he's making a football comeback. Manziel announced today that he will participate in the Developmental Spring League in Austin, Texas, which will play from March 28th to April 15th. This league is designed for players hoping to impress NFL scouts. The league confirmed that Manziel will participate. Manziel won the Heisman as a freshman with Texas A&M in 2012 and left school after his sophomore season for the NFL. He was drafted in the first round by the Cleveland Browns, but then cut in 2016 and hasn't played since. And the Olympic men's hockey tournament has opened up with a pair of surprises with both the Americans and the favorite Russians losing 3-2. to Slovenia rallied late to nip the Americans. In the second game, the Olympic athletes from Russia lost to Slovakia by giving up a two-goal lead. The Russians were widely considered the pre-tournament favorite for the gold medal. That's a look at sports. Have a great day. I'm Jason Jorgensen. Stay tuned. More Midday is just ahead.
6: You are listening to the World Radio Network. Some fog developing in Nebraska tonight with lows in the 20s and low 30s. I'm Dave Schroeder. Officials say they arrested a California man after marijuana, hash oil, and hash wax were found in the truck he was driving down Interstate 80. A Seward County Sheriff's Sergeant deployed his police dog after making a traffic stop around noon yesterday. A Sheriff's Office news release says the dog alerted the sergeant to the odor of drugs in the vehicle. Officers who searched it found nearly 112 pounds of marijuana, 995 vials of hash oil, and nearly 5 pounds of hash wax. The street value of the drugs is estimated at $560,000. The truck driver was arrested on suspicion of several drug crimes. Senator Bob Christ announced yesterday his plans to run for governor as a newly registered Democrat. Previously, Chris had changed his party affiliation from Republican to Independent in his bid for governor. He told supporters that he's hopeful voters will consider his record in the legislature over the past 10 years.
7: I was appointed by a Republican governor, but upon walking in the doors of this nonpartisan unicameral, I put my voter registration away and worked for the past 10 years with Democrats, Republicans, and Independents to get things done for the 1.9 million people around the state. Every day of every session for the past decade, I've been proud to stand in that chamber, embodied by the nonpartisan leadership that George Norris envisioned. Driverless cars could
6: become a reality on city streets under a bill heard by members of the legislature's Transportation and Telecommunications Committee on Tuesday. A bill, LB-989, introduced by Lincoln Senator Anna Wishart, would authorize a city of the primary class to conduct a pilot project to test autonomous vehicles, which operate without a human operator. Currently, Lincoln is the only primary class city in the state. Senator Wishart says the bill reflects groundbreaking and leading-edge technology.
8: Safety remains one of my top priorities uh, in the deployment of this technology. In a time where vehicular crashes uh, and fatalities with crashes are on a rise, autonomous vehicle technology shows great potential in preventing injuries, saving lives, and reducing the cost of traffic crashes. An estimated 94 percent of traffic accidents are caused by human error.
6: The idea received a lukewarm reception from State Department of Motor Vehicles Director Rhonda Lamb, who said Nebraska would be best served by a comprehensive statewide policy instead of a localized pilot project. Our app is a perfect companion to your phone. downloaded free in the App Store or Google Play. Reporting from the KRVN News Center,
1: I'm Dave Schroeder. Many describing the infrastructure plan as overdue. Transportation and consequences is what it means to the rural communities and the temptation to focus exclusively on roads and bridges, but the need to also focus on waterways, ports and rail. Good afternoon. I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. Mike Steenhook is the executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. He has spent the last couple of days reading over President Trump's unveiled infrastructure plan and what it does mean for rural america
9: i think it's important that we at least have this discussion is commencing oh this is something that we've been anticipating for a considerable period of time and infrastructure has been perpetually on the on-deck circle and it's nice to see finally that there's some some at least some specific contours of what the president is envisioning and aspiring to do and so we're we're very hopeful that something will get achieved uh in the very near future because the reality is, is that you as you get closer to the election season and you can argue that we're already in it, but as you get closer and closer to it, the prospect for getting something done actually goes down. So we're very hopeful that something will get achieved in the very near future. We're very encouraged that there is that the president wants to make his strategy multimodal. There's a temptation to focus disproportionately on roads and bridges. That certainly is critical to agriculture and the broader economy, but it's not the sum total of what our infrastructure package should look like. We also need to incorporate ports. We need to incorporate inland waterways, our freight rail system, all of those types of things. And we, and we also appreciate the fact that there is some specific attention to the needs of rural America in that plan and the desire to allocate some block grants to states to funds for some of the specific rural needs. Those decisions are much better uh, determined at the local level than trying to be orchestrated at the federal level. And so we're, there's some reason for encouragement. There's a lot of specificity that needs to be achieved and but we're looking forward to contributing to that discussion but uh, we're looking forward for this to, to move forward and hopefully gain some momentum in the weeks and months to come.
1: You know, it just seems like the, the discussion of, of the the locks and dams has been just a series of ongoing discussions, and we don't ever get very far in those discussions, so hopefully we get to see some momentum pick up with this infrastructure plan.
9: It, it really can sound like a broken record, uh, the need to invest in our locks and dams. We're, we're happy that uh, there has been some increased funding for the system over the past number of years, particularly... Uh, What we've really stressed is more funding for operations and maintenance, Um, just simply taking care of the system and bringing it up to a more reliable state. That has occurred, but we need to see more of that. One of the things that we are really promoting uh, this year, and we hope that it'll gain some receptivity with the White House and Congress, is the need to provide greater predictability of funding for locks and dams. It's not just a function of writing a bigger check. It's writing that same size of check, but just provide, making sure it's, it's provided in a more reliable fashion, so that work on these very expensive projects, it can start on time, it can have a greater likelihood of stopping on time and being concluded on time, and being completed within the original budget parameters. And we think that there's a lot of opportunities for improvement on the cost side of the equation, not just on the revenue side of the equation it's not just government providing more money we would certainly we would like greater investment levels but there's also a lot of room for improvement on the cost side of the equation getting more bang for our buck
1: anything else that you would like to add as we as we move forward with this infrastructure discussion well the
9: president talks a lot about winning in the international marketplace and i would argue that agriculture is the best example of an industry that has been winning and continues to win uh, on the international marketplace. Uh, It's one of those industries that has a positive trade balance. It's one of those industries that is taking the surplus of what we grow and exporting it around the world and providing funding and economic vitality to rural areas of the country. And so that's a good message and I think the President Acknowledges that and wants to encourage that further, but the best one of the best ways of doing that is is to make sure we've got a multimodal transportation system that allows that to be achieved. And so we're hopeful that we'll see something concrete done uh, within this year.
1: My conversation with Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. From Iowa, well, the American Farm Bureau Federation says the president's infrastructure proposal would bring long overdue improvements to rural areas. The proposed fifty billion dollars will fund rural infrastructure projects. Congressional relations director Andrew Walmsley says the funding would provide a boost to many of the rural communities. With the various types of infrastructure important to farm and ranch businesses, including the internet. He said that the American Farm Bureau Federation will work with others in agriculture to support improvements of this rural infrastructure, a plan that the president had touted while he was on the campaign trail. I'm Susan Littlefield on the Pro Radio Network.
10: Let's talk more about the surge in livestock futures trade with Joe Teal at Great Plains Commodities. Joe?
7: Yeah, it was a very positive day for uh, livestock. Right straight across, uh, cattle feeders and hogs, all... Uh performing pretty well, and hogs really took uh, first place with uh, triple-digit gains in the April, uh, April, May, and June contracts, uh, even the August, uh, all triple-digit gains. Uh, it was the expiration of the February contract today, and it went off very quietly, uh, but uh, noticing that the discount uh, with the April contract, where the February went off, uh we saw some pretty good uh, buying show up. Uh, cash actually was uh, quoted as a little bit lower this morning, but uh, the cutouts uh, back up a little bit at noon, and I think that continued to help uh, matters with the hogs. So a fairly positive day there uh, as we uh, head into the rest of the week here. And over in the cattle, uh, just kind of plodding along all day long, a little bit higher, and uh, uh, was. A pretty quiet, uh, benign trade compared to what we've seen in the past. And uh, the only thing I've heard uh, about cattle trading is a 120, a 126 uh, trade. Uh, but that uh, didn't seem to uh, matter to the market at all. I was still thinking that the uh, trade will come a little bit stronger at the end of the week.
10: Thanks, Joe. Joe Teal can be reached. Great Plains Commodities. 800 328 Total cattle slaughter first three days this week, estimated 342,000 compared with a year ago, 2,000 more. 1,388,000 hogs, 82,000 more than one year ago.
8: Producers are encouraged by the introduction of the Farm Act. Good afternoon, I'm Shaley Peters on the Rural Radio Network. Our guest today to visit with us about this, one of the senators that introduced it, Senator Dev Fisher, and Senator Fisher, you led the way with this act and it's something we've been watching from 2017 into 2018 now there was a lot of uncertainty surrounding this so why don't you just jump in and tell us a little bit about your Fair Agricultural Reporting Method Act Well we've just
11: heard so many concerns the last um, several months especially about the re- reporting requirements that are out there for farmers and ranchers and it's in regards to um, a uh, ruling by the DC circuit court which overturned an exemption that EPA had granted to livestock producers the bill or the law was never was never meant to include livestock it's a superfund law that uh, looked at hazardous waste sites so when the DC court overturned that exemption uh, it was time to get to work and so we brought together a really good coalition of a bipartisan group of senators who want to see a, le- a legislative change to that and be able to exempt these animal waste emissions. I led led the group. We have a number of Republicans. We also have a number of Democrats on it. And as you know, to be able to get anything done in the United States Senate, It does take bipartisan work. Uh, I'm hopeful that we can get this done.
8: And I think it is encouraging to see the bipartisan effort on this. And so hopefully let's talk about... The timeline for this and what we can expect there. And then also, what exactly does this mean for producers? Well, for the timeline, as, uh, as you said, we just introduced it yesterday.
11: Uh, we'll see, since it does have such great bipartisan support, that possibly it could be passed by the Senate on unanimous consent. If we do get enough uh, support from Folks on the other side of the aisle from Democrats, uh, and nobody objects. Um, that's that's kind of the best case scenario. You know, it's really um, it's ridiculous that um, we would have to look at at um, livestock uh, as uh, as really a, a superfund site, a, a contaminated site where you usually are looking at hazardous waste or. Or uh, chemical uh, spills, things like that, and EPA understood that, but obviously the the DC District Court did not, and there there is no uh, public health benefit to these rules being put on agriculture. There there are no mechanisms in place that can be used to try to calculate those em- emissions, and so. Um, yeah, as I said, with with this great support that we're getting from Republicans and Democrats here in the Senate, uh, we just hope to get it done and get it done soon.
8: And one last final quick question for you, Senator Fisher. Is this something that will be effective immediately for producers? Uh, I, I hope so.
11: I hope so that we can get that in, yes.
8: All right, thanks so much. Senator Deb Fisher visiting with us today about the Fair Agricultural Reporting Method Act or Farm Act introduced yesterday by her and several other senators on both the Democratic and Republican side of the aisle. For more information on this, you can visit RuralRadio.com. You're listening to the Rural Radio Network.
10: Dewey Nelson on the Rural Radio Network. Soybean meal finished higher for the seventh straight session today, lifting soybean contracts corn was fractionally higher. With us, John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniel's Ag Marketing in Chicago and publisher of the newsletter This Week in Grain. So did the currency market have a, a big factor in this rally?
12: Yeah, everything is kind of shining on the U.S. producer right now. You've got the South American problems. They're well documented with Argentina having issues on the dryness. Brazil a little bit too wet. And then you have the currency issues, which really have been going against us the last couple of weeks. Uh, we got a you know, break this morning. I'm not exactly sure why, but the dollar weakened heavily on the on the strong PMI numbers, uh, or CPI numbers, ra- rather, uh, this morning once at uh, oh, 7.30 a.m. The uh, outside markets broke, the grain markets broke, and then just a mid-morning turned around. We saw a surge in the Brazilian real currency, basically coming back to levels we were at two weeks ago. After taking really two weeks to break down to the levels that we made this morning so uh, obviously the markets like what they see they're selling the dollar that's going to be good for producers here uh, we're seeing a lot of premium being put in the bean market as well this is going to be a tough year. I, I, I really want to stress that to guys who are, who are you know, taking on a lot of risk here in February. Uh, soybeans are a monster in waiting, and we haven't even talked about U.S. production. Obviously, you look at the U.S. balance sheet, you look at U.S. exports, those are laggers. I certainly understand that, and that would be a reason you'd want to sell this contract here. But I'm going to reiterate, it's February 14th lot of time left here, and there's a lot of story to be written to get to that 700 million plus U.S. carryout that everybody's talking about. So, if uh, if I were a betting man, I would be a little more patient here, I'd let the cards come out, and see kind of where we go here. The strength of the dollar is something that we didn't have a year ago, and if it would continue, I think you could easily push up to 10.40, 10.50 in that front month contract.
10: Do you like that December corn contract at four dollars still?
12: I do. I, I think the strength here in corn is resilient as well. Uh, I'm not sure if it's dollar-related or simply demand-related or South American-related, but the fact of the matter is conversations with people from across the country. And there's one thing that every almost every producer is doing, except for the guys who sold already, is delivering corn into March, pricing basis contracts due for March. And at this point, it feels like the market should have broken by now. You know, a lot of the guys... You know, simply saying, hey, that 370 level would be a great place to sell. I certainly agree with them, but the strength here, and even though we closed a little bit weak, uh, you know, I expect tomorrow we'll get good exports, and I expect the weather in Argentina to, you know, stay dry here for the next couple of weeks. It doesn't look like anything's going to change. So I think if we do test maybe 375 by the time things all said and done.
10: Thanks, John. John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst, Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago. The place to go is their website, com.